46. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for even one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is, po if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is God's word, and you may be seated. I'm going to ask the fellows in the sound booth if you can dim the lights to stage, please. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, what a, a stirring moment we have come to in the life of Jesus. And how we how we we so long to express our, our gratitude for all the things that he suffered and sorrowed through and was distressed by and the pain and the agony of his soul and mind and body because of our sins and his sacrifice so that there might be atonement, that there might be friendship and uh, adoption into family, Father, between you and us. We pray, Father, that... that that we hear the words of this text that Jimmy read for us in our mind and in our sanctified imagination in such a way that we are transported back there and, and visit this text in our minds, Father, in, in such a way that we are swept uh, into greater humility and into greater conviction and commitment to living our lives in honor of this love that we are being shown. So give us eyes that see, Father, and, and ears that hear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We are nearly at the end of our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And as you have seen over the last couple of weeks as we have kind of sped through the, the latter chapters of this Gospel, we've not been able to consider all of the episodes that are recorded for us in this, this story of Jesus' life by Matthew. But we've uh, tried trying to address the best known, at least most of the time. And, and the text that Jimmy just read for us out of Matthew chapter 26 that's before us this morning is we are at that point in Jesus' life. It's, it's the night before he is crucified. He has just had the Last Supper. He has left the city of Jerusalem proper. He has crossed the Kidron Valley to the, to the, uh, to the east of the city. And he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a place where there is an olive press, where olives were pressed uh, and, and made into oil. The, the entire garden is basically an olive grove. And one of the things that I hope that uh, you'll remember is at the very beginning of the series that we did on Matthew, one of the things that we, we looked at in some detail was the, the beginning of Jesus' ministry uh, began with this, this series of temptations in the wilderness. And now uh, it's essentially ending. The night before his crucifixion, it's, his ministry is essentially ending with a great temptation in this garden. And one of the reasons that Jesus has gone to this garden, to this private place, is in order to be with his Father. He's gone there to pray to God. And in this prayer, this, this time, this, this meeting, turns into this very intense encounter. And Jesus takes three of his closest disciples uh, a little bit further into this garden, leaving the other nine, uh, or the other eight, as it were, uh, maybe towards the entrance of the garden. He takes these three into this, this garden a little bit more deeply. And it shows that Jesus at this time is, has this desperate need for companionship. He has uh, a need for friendship at this time. And there is uh, something that is going on in this garden that as we read it, it begs for an explanation. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22 and verse 44, he says that Jesus began to be in agony. Now, Matthew does not use the word agony, neither he nor Mark use this word. But instead, what he uses um, to describe this suffering is to say that Jesus is sorrowing or he is grieving to the point of death. And to understand this emotion, this, this agony, this sorrowing, this distressing to the point of death in the garden, is to understand, I think, a little bit of how Jesus died. To understand what he was going through as he was approaching the cross. And to understand how Jesus died as well as to understand some of the things about how we should be living as disciples. You'll remember that the theme this year for our church is discipleship. It is about learning to live our lives as, and to live those lives as Jesus lived his life. And, and in this text, I think we find some of the motivation to live it as profoundly and with as much passion and conviction as we can. And we're really going to look at it from two angles. The first is, you know, what is this agony that Jesus is experiencing? Look at verse 37. Jesus takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him. And he begins to be what? He begins to be what, church? Sorrowful and troubled. Sorrowful and troubled. So he's walking along, and then something happens to him very suddenly. 
All of a sudden, sorrow, this, this inner pain comes over him. And all of a sudden, he is troubled, which means that there is not just this pain that he has on the inside, but he's troubled. There is this horror that comes to his mind. And the Gospel of Mark even says that he is amazed that this, this rush of emotion astonished him. There's this incredible rushing agony that comes upon him and he's astonished. And Jesus tells these three friends, these three disciples in private in verse 38, My soul is overwhelmed. Think about those times when you've been overwhelmed. There are times when, you know, we have a lot of homework and we feel like we're overwhelmed with a lot of tasks. But I'm talking about the emotional overwhelming that we experience at times where we find it hard to breathe. And sometimes that emotional, that, that overwhelming sense that we have in our emotional life paralyzes us a little bit. What Jesus is saying is that He is being crushed by this grief. This overwhelming and sorrow to the point of death is like being crushed by grief and horror and pain that has come down on Him. And He's saying, I feel that all of this is going to kill me right here on the spot. Now Jesus is not a man that is prone to exaggeration. Luke's Gospel also tells us in, in verse 44 of the 22nd chapter that Jesus is drenched with sweat. A sweat that has these, these droplets of, or these, these, it's mixed with blood which is rare but not impossible for someone who is under tremendous and extraordinary duress. Now here is Jesus facing death and He's sweating these droplets of blood mixed with His sweat and He's grieving and He's sorrowing to the point of death. Let's step out of that just for a moment and, and, and think very carefully about, about this experience. How does what Jesus is experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane with this sorrow, this agony rushing over Him like this, how does that compare to the death, say, of, of some of the martyrs, for instance, in history? There are a lot of stories of, of the death of those disciples of Jesus who did so with poise. That surprisingly, a lot of stories of Christians dying for their faith record that they, they die with this certain kind of poise. One of the most famous and one of the earliest is this bishop of Smyrna by the name of Polycarp. It's one example. He's attacked by an angry mob there in Smyrna. He is taken to the Roman authorities. These leaders see his age, that he's feeble, that he's, that he's, he's weak in his body, that he's frail. He's just an old man. He's not much of a threat to the empire. But because he's been brought before them, they have to ask him the question, are you willing to renounce Jesus? They encourage him for the sake of his own life. The fact that he's old, the fact that he's not going to be able to withstand much of the pressure that they're going to apply to him. And he says, I, you know, that's not going to happen. And so they, they tie him to a, to a stake and they pile the wood around him. And he's been asked one more time to renounce Jesus to save himself, to save himself from being burned at the stake. And he won't do it. And as they light the fire and the fires begin to, to touch his body, he says, after they ask him again to renounce, he says, Eighty and six years I've served Christ. 
and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Later in church history, this actually happened in Oxford, England, not in the Middle East. Many of you, if you've taken some of the church history courses that we've taught from time to time, know the story of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer who were also burned for their faith. And as the flames begin to touch and they begin to be in the agony of the fire, Latimer says to Ridley, in the agony, he says, Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall light this day a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And there are other stories just as impressive where these disciples of Jesus show sort of this, this inner peace, uh, a certain poise, even uh, a sense of tranquility of the soul. Do we see that in Jesus? Do we have that in Jesus here? And the answer is no. We also see three times Jesus goes away and prays about this issue. Is there any way out of this? Can this cup be taken away from me? And he's trembling. He's sweating blood the whole time. And so the question is, how come so many of Jesus' followers handled their deaths with such poise and with such, such a, 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 you know, a, a, a lack of the demonstration of agony? And the answer is this. No one in the history of the world ever faced a death like Jesus's. No one. Well, how is that, you might ask? Well, Jesus is not surprised by the fact that he is going to die. He has been talking uh, about it a lot with his disciples. He has been very blunt in some places about how he's going to die and what's going to happen to him before he dies. In Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10, he spends a, a lot of those three chapters preparing them for the fact that he's going to die when he gets to Jerusalem. And the fact that he is going to die is not the thing that, that astonishes him. The thing that levels Jesus and puts him in the dust is this. It's the cup. It's the cup. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. And that's what he prays three times. Is there any way around the cup? Is there any way around from having to drink it down? In the ancient world, the cup meant suffering some sort of ordeal. In fact, the cup was the way that you executed some people. One of the greatest examples of this is Socrates. He was executed because he was just corrupting the, the, the virtues of, of youth and he has to drink the cup of poison. In, in the Old Testament, the cup meant God's divine judgment coming down on all wrongdoing. The cup of God's wrath. Judgment coming down on sin and sinfulness. This is what God says in Ezekiel chapter 23. He says, you're going to be filled with drunkenness and sorrow. The cup of ruin and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria, you will drink it and drain it dry, you will dash it to pieces, and you will what? Tear your breasts. Isaiah 51, Isaiah says to some people, O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath. You have drained it to its dregs, the goblet that makes men stagger. This tearing at your chest, this, this staggering... 
is a metaphor for having drunk some kind of fiery poison that is not only putting you in agony, but you know that you're dying. It is the execution and the punishment of God in judgment coming down on you. And it's that that Jesus is facing. The wrath of God is coming down on Him in judgment. Jesus is the only one to face this cup, this, this divine, infinite wrath of God that sin deserves, and all of that's coming down on Him. And the thing that is most horrible to Him in drinking this cup is that He's being shut out of the presence of God. That's the way the sin is punished throughout the Bible. Uh, you'll remember that passage that Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, you know, talking about people who are outside of, of the will of God, those that have rejected God, he says, they're going to be punished with everlasting destruction and what? Shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Now, why would that be a punishment? Well, the reason, the answer is that we were made for the presence of God, for that kind of relationship. In Genesis 1 and 2, we were created to enjoy God's presence. That's the way we were created. That's the way it once, once was. Our nature, our human nature, needs God's presence the way that the flower needs the sun. You take that sun away from the flower, and what happens? It begins to fall apart. Now sin, at, at a basic level... And trying to understand what human sin is is, is, is sin always tries to convince us that we would be better off if we were out, of, out from under God's control. The very first sin was what? You don't need God. You can be God yourself. God's lied to you. You can't be trusted. He knows that you're not going to die. What He didn't tell you was that you can be a God yourself. We'd be happier if God wasn't breathing down our neck every day. But the reality is that we need God. Once we were removed out of the presence of God in Genesis 1 and 2, and sin came into the world, so did death. And the ultimate of punishments is to be shut out of God's presence forever. Which means that He excludes us. You know, people... They want to they, they want to debate the nature of hell all the time and 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 maybe maybe those debates have some merit about the the specific details of hell but let me tell you what the most frightening thing about hell to me is out of all of the things that could be debated or talked about you know hell is described as a place where where there's eternal fire there's eternal agony it's the place where the worm never dies and all of these really graphic horrific kinds of images do you know what the most devastating fact of hell is to me, it is the place where there is not an ounce of hope, a, 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 a sniff of hope that God will ever come for you. And the thing that is, that is most terrible to Jesus is being shut out of the presence of God. He excludes us, and we begin to fall apart. And this, friends, because of our sin, 
is what's happening to Jesus. Jesus knew the unbroken face-to-face fellowship with God, but as He begins to pray, as He goes into that garden, He begins to experience the dreadful shock of the cup. One of my my favorite commentary writers, William Lane, in a, a commentary on Mark over the same section, writes these words. He says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from God, which is entailed in the, in, in the judgment of, upon sin, which Jesus assumes upon himself. Jesus came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. What Lane is saying is that the shock of the separation and, and, and the dereliction that is to come upon him at the cross, he is beginning to feel now. And he's tearing at his breast and he's staggering and he is beginning to experience it all now. And he turned to the Father in prayer and he began to sense that separation in the garden. I mean, one of the the most devastating things that a spouse can do to another spouse is, is to what? Give the silent treatment. To turn the back. And Jesus turns to the Father in prayer and begins to sense that separation in the garden, the divine, omnipotent judgment of God that human sin deserves, he begins to feel. He doesn't complain about dying. It's the cup. It's eternal destruction. It's hell that Jesus begins to taste. Now let's Again, let's stop for a minute and and let's ask a question. Do we see what Jesus is doing for us? You know, a lot of people say that they don't believe in a God of wrath, but a God of love. A lot of us hear that on a day-to-day basis. We don't want to think about hell. We don't want to think about wrath. We just want a God of love. Somebody that loves us because He just loves us, doesn't hold us accountable, and He thinks we're cute and beautiful. And I always want to ask, that's fine. That's fine, but let me ask you something. What did that God of love have to give up in order to love you? And the answer is nothing. You know what? That answer doesn't make sense to me. It's just sentimentality. If we don't understand a God who has a cup of wrath for sin, then we will never understand a God of love who is willing to drink it himself for us. Doesn't that just move you in your soul? When you experience that kind of love. The love is seen in the fact that God is willing to absorb that cup that you deserve and I deserve to to absorb it for us. And if just the taste and the glimpse of these sufferings in the garden were enough to throw the eternal Son of God into shock and nearly kill Him in anticipation of it, then what were those sufferings on the cross really like? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And He did it for us. So what is really the significance here? Why does the agony and sorrowing begin here when all Jesus wanted was one more time of prayer to fortify Himself as He got ready for the cross? Seems a little bit cruel, does it not? And Jesus is going to be one more time with the Father to fortify Himself and these sorts of things. And He gets this. I remember over in John chapter 10 that Jesus makes this, this huge point of saying, there is no one who takes my life from me. But I'm going to be the one who lays it down according to my own will. Now why is that, that statement significant? Well, you know, many times we make decisions only to change that decision about halfway through and we find out that it's too late. You know, I've done uh, over the last 30 years maybe close to, to 300 weddings. And not all the time, but just a couple of times, maybe 1% of the time you, you, you find yourself in the back room with a groom and he's going, what have I gotten myself into? But there's no backing out. If you say you're going to die on the cross and you're going to take away the sins of the world, the physical suffering, the spiritual judgment of every human being, that's what you're going to bear. And then all of a sudden, as you see the nails about to be driven into your wrist, you change your mind, it's too late. You're nailed to the cross. But what if Jesus finds Himself beforehand in the garden in the dark? Before the soldiers arrive, and while sensing the sudden rush of horror that the cross entails coming upon Him like an avalanche, would it not be easy for Him to indulge Himself just a little? And to say, maybe I need to get out while the getting's good. And he struggles with that. Is there any way this cup can pass from me? But he gives his life anyway. It is radically voluntary to know how dreadful the cup he is going to drink is. And to drink it anyway. Do you see how important it is to know that Jesus knew what He was getting into at the garden while He could still escape in the dark of night? But He went to Golgotha anyway for you. And what that means is that His obedience to God is infinitely more perfect and His love for you and His love for me infinitely more beautiful. It was dark. He could have left. Even more importantly, He could have called how many angels? 10,000. But He didn't in voluntary obedience to God's will. You know, centuries before this, God takes Adam, the first man, puts him in the Garden of Eden. He shows him this tree and He says, Adam, just one thing. If you obey me about this tree, you will live and I will be with you forever. And the first Adam didn't obey. 
And now, centuries later, in another garden, God takes the second Adam and shows him a tree, except it's a cross. And He says, Obey me about this tree, and you will die. Obey me about this tree, and you will be crushed to powder. Obey me about this tree, and I will abandon you. You know, every person in history is told by God, Obey me and I will be with you. Obey me and I will bless you. Jesus is the only one who is told by God, Obey me and you will be destroyed. And Jesus still does it. Has anyone ever loved God like that? You know, Jesus is asked, one day, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he says, a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The reason there is a second like it is because they happened at the same time. Jesus was loving God and loving us at the same time. In the garden, Jesus desperate for companionship he takes three disciples with him but they keep falling asleep in his greatest stress in his greatest moment of duress he's he's needing them i'd, I'd like to think i don't know I'd like to think that I was a better friend if I was there. I know you do too. But they fall asleep on him, his best friends. And when Jesus is shown the cup of God's wrath and asked to drink it on behalf of these weak and worthless friends, he does not say, why should I die for them? He does not say, why should I plunge myself into the wrath for people who can never, ever, ever in a million years repay me. He dies for them anyway. He chooses in the garden to love. And I'm here to tell you, nobody has ever loved you like this. He's in the garden. He begins to taste the terror of the cup. And he says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Four very quick applications. You know, there's a difference that this garden should make in your life. It's not just window dressing for the cross. Significant things are happening and there are significant teachings. One is you model your obedience on Jesus' obedience. You know when your obedience, when your discipleship, when your discipleship is best seen, it's not when you agree with the Christ. I mean, think about your own kids. I mean, you know, the, the obedience and the respect and the, the allegiance that your children show you is not when they obey you when they agree with you. It's when they don't understand or when they disagree with you, but they do it anyway. 
You know, quite frankly, a lot of us have need, we're needing to raise the bar a little bit in our commitment and, and what it means to obey Jesus in our life. And then secondly, model your prayer life on Jesus' prayer life. You know, Jesus is not being stoic here. He's being realistic with the reality that God is confronting him with. Jesus says he thinks he's going to die right there in the garden. And he's talking to God honestly. And he knows that the purpose of prayer, though, is not to bend God's will to his, but to bend his, his will to God in order to rest in God's wisdom. And we almost never do that. Jesus, in the end, says that it's about God's will. Number three, model your forgiveness on Jesus' forgiveness. I, I got a lot of things to say here. I'm, I just want to, we're out of time. But let me say this. You have absolutely no reason to not forgive anybody who has ever wronged you in this life. I tell you the truth before God. When you see what's going on before the cross and on the cross, and then in arrogance say, I will never forgive that person. Oh, you might say it with your lips. And you might act hypocritically, but in your heart of hearts you've not forgiven them. How dare you, in light of God's grace that saves you and His drinking down the cup for you. There's a reason that Paul goes ballistic whenever he sees a church where people are not getting along with one another. I mean, he writes an entire letter to the church in Philippi to say, you know what, you got big problems. And only part of them are doctrinal. Those can be fixed. You just need teaching. What you need to do is get those two ladies back together again. Don't divide the body. When people come into our church fellowship, they need to sense love and forgiveness and mercy and generosity and a commitment to the holiness of God in our lives. Last thing, model your suffering on Jesus' suffering. You know, from time to time, it kind of sticks in our crawl when we suffer some unjust punishments. And I've suffered a few. Punished unjustly, unjustly accused unjustly. It's kind of funny that it never seems to bother me that I got out of some of the punishments that I did justly deserve. But I look at this story. I look at this story. And he's so innocent. And he is so loving and caring and holy and pure and righteous. The only innocent sufferer in the history of the world. And yet he does it. And yet he does it. I think we always need to respond to the Word of God wherever we encounter it. Sometimes we need to repent because we, 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 we get a, a closer glimpse, a clearer glimpse of what it meant for us to be, to be saved the suffering that he went through in order for us to be happy here this morning, joyfully singing, encouraging one another, in love with one another, and thankful to God.
But then we catch that glimpse and we see just how desperate our situation was and how ugly we can truly be and how we're made beautiful in Christ. We need to repent. We need to repent. And then the other response, I think, is to be convicted. To be convicted. To step in His steps. To follow in His shoes. To go down His path and to live as He lived. And, and, to, and to do what, he, was, you know, what he, he commends us to do. And to do it with all of our strength and to do it with all of our heart. Do it with everything that's about us. And the last response is, you, you know, if, if, if you've never taken advantage of the cross and the grace, His, His suffering for you, then what is at the end of the road for you is, is suffering and separation from God in hell without any hope that God will ever come for you. It breaks the mind to even think about it. And all that God is asking is that you'll move just the, the pinky of faith to trust Him. That He really does love you. And that Jesus' death on the cross really was acceptable to Him in order to pay for the crimes that your sin and my sin, our crimes against His, his holiness, the crimes that we have committed against His good creation, the crimes that we have, have, have per, uh, perpetrated against the other image bearers of God all around us in the community, to trust that all of that is paid on the cross and to change the direction of our life towards Him and to confess that He is Lord and to have our sins washed away and to have that Spirit inside of us and to live each day of your life worthy of that kind of love. To live that kind of life that's worthy of that kind of love. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. Why would you wait? Why would you wait? Why would you wait? The opportunity is to come down and to speak to these shepherds about the desires and the needs of your heart. You can do that now as we stand and sing together. There's a fountain free, tis for you and me.